So I'd very much like to welcome you to this retreat, and I hope you have felt very welcomed by IMS. Um, this is Chaz. My name is Christina. And I must say, I'm looking around and feeling rather astonished by all the empty chairs. They're usually the first things to go in this hall. Um, and I'm, I am hoping that for those of you who are new to IMS, and I know there's quite a few, I am hoping you're not feeling that it's more saintly to sit on the floor. Uh, in it, really do what is right for your body. And if a chair is, is more available to you and you might suddenly take up that idea tomorrow after sitting around for quite a while. So weekend retreat is really quite a short time. Uh, it's also a very worthy time. And it is a time when we can stop. And actually, it's a time of enormous luxury in some ways. You know, I, I know many people go through their lives kind of wired and tired is the expression. You know, either remarkably busy or remarkably exhausted by the amount of doing that many people's lives demand of them. And this really is a time where you can stop where you can pause. It's a very dedicated time. And it's a time that is very dedicated to listening inwardly, to being present, to even acquainting yourself for the first time, perhaps, with what it really means to be present. Um, I know quite a number of you are new to IMS, and it takes really quite a bit of effort to get here. So I applaud you for that effort. I'm also aware that you may already have had the thought, what on earth have I got myself into? And I just want to assure you that you will probably have that thought a number more times over the weekend. And it is a thought, and I really want you to relax into being here. If you're new to IMS or, or new to a Dharma center like this, it can all seem pretty odd in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, pretty unusual. You can be somewhat uncertain about how to do it right, so to speak. Um, you know, and the first little time here is about finding your way around, relaxing, there isn't a doing it right. There isn't a doing it perfect. Um, but to discover a real sense of ease, I hope, in being here. And I know already this evening, you've probably been saturated with more information than you ever wanted to have. Um, and I'm about to saturate you with a little bit more. So I hope you can be patient and persevere with that. So this evening, really what I'd like to talk about is to give you a little bit of an overview of really why we're here and what this practice is about and what this path is about. And 
Really what I want to talk about is both the art and the craft of meditation practice. And we could refer to it as the spirit and the form or the attitude and the form. But these two aspects of this path, the art and the craft, are very much interwoven. And they need to be interwoven and in balance. You know, we don't really come here and just teach a technique. You know, if you really wanted to learn just a technique, it's actually really much quicker just to pick up a book. What we really talk about here is um, a way of being in our lives, a way of being with ourselves, a way of being with the world around us, which has much more to do with our attitude or the art of this practice. And when the, when the Buddha talked about what we're doing here and the whole of this teaching, he really didn't just talk about formal meditation practice. He really talked about a path, about the cultivation of an awakened life in which formal meditation practice, as we engage in it here, was really just one aspect of that path. Certainly an important aspect. I mean, it's, it's so, so important for us to, to learn the art of what it means to collect and gather our attentiveness. It's so important that we acquaint ourselves with what it means to, to be mindful, to be present, to be able to connect and live moment to moment wholeheartedly. But when the Buddha talked about meditation practice as such, sitting and walking, he very much talked about this formal practice being in a dialogue with wise speech, with wise action, with wise effort, with wise livelihood, with relationship. So he was really talking about a path that very much incorporated the whole of our lives in which meditation practice didn't occupy some interesting little corner, but really the cultivation of a way of being which was intended to touch every aspect of our life and valuing, valuing every aspect of our life. And 2,600 years ago, you know, it's very easy to sort of romantic, you know, you see these Buddhist statues, it's very easy to romanticize, you know, the, the Buddha as a kind of figure. But of course, Siddhartha was a person, a person who appeared in India 2,600 years ago, but a kind of archetypal person uh, of people who have appeared and appear throughout time, throughout different traditions, throughout different religions, people who were really trying to understand what it meant and means to live an awakened life. And, you know, I think that that, is, that archetypal figure is, you know, somehow also us. You know, that we come here not because it's a vacation, you know, and not because it's a place to, you know, kind of zone out, 
But I, I think for people who come here to IMS, just like people who've gone to deserts over centuries, forests, monasteries, caves, you know, in so many different settings, there is, I think, some aspirational quality in our own hearts of really longing to understand what it means to be awake, longing to understand what it means to be free from estrangement and confusion and disconnection, really longing to know what it means really to be awake to our own inner life with everything that it holds. And so, you know, more than 2,600 years ago, Siddhartha and others like him really engaged in the path. And 2,600 years ago, people would come to the Buddha with very much the same questions in many ways, the same dilemmas that we face in our own lives. You know, what to do with the realities of aging and sickness and death, what to do with the realities of loss and grief and confusion and despair, and what to do with the realities at times of, of really a tormented mind. And in answer to those questions and, and the, those dilemmas, the Buddha's answer was never just sit more. And in fact, Ajahn Chah, one of the great forest teachers in, in this tradition, you know, a monk came to him, you know, complaining that he didn't have enough time to sit, you know, because there were so many duties to take care of in the monastery and he wasn't making any progress in his practice because he didn't have enough time to sit more. And Ajahn Chah's response to him was, you know, I've seen chickens who can sit for a very, very long time and never yet met an enlightened chicken. <laughs> so the, the Buddha's answer to these questions, which I think are part of all of our lives, was actually to investigate. To investigate. To come close to our lives, to come close to our experience in this life, and to investigate on a moment-to-moment -moment level what causes anguish and distress and confusion. What is it that leads to the end of anguish and distress and confusion? And very much place that investigation really in, onto a level of immediacy, on a moment-to-moment -moment investigation. And, you know, the, really the encouragement was is if we can really see this in ourselves, if we can really see this in our lives, then it becomes much more clear to us what it is important that we cultivate, nourish, and develop, and what it is important for us to let go of, to let go, learn to let go of, to release, to clarify, everything that ties us to confusion, that leads, leads to harmfulness in a way, harming of our own hearts and minds. Many years ago, when I was beginning in this practice, I, I came across this statement in, in the discourses, which I must admit completely confused me at the time where the Buddha said, this path is one that is lovely in the beginning and lovely in the middle and lovely in the end. And it confused me because it was so, uh, in so much contrast to my own experience of meditation at that time. 
you know, which felt really hard in the beginning and really challenging. And in the middle, it continued at times to feel very hard and challenging. And the loveliness that I could relate to at that time was sometimes, you know, finishing a retreat and breathing a sigh of relief and being grateful that I survived intact. So I began really to reflect on, on what this means. And, and I think it's a very important reflection as you begin a retreat. What does it mean, what would it mean for this time for you here to be a time that was lovely in the beginning, lovely in the middle, and lovely in the end? And I think for that to be true for us, it doesn't mean there's an absence of challenge. It doesn't mean there's an absence at times of, you know, when we're asked to, to you know, persevere with times that are not easy. But I think that loveliness has much to do really with our attitude, with how we approach this. You know, there, there is a vast difference between sincerity in undertaking this practice, which is asked of us, and, and dedication, and a kind of over-earnestness. You know, sometimes when you, when you look around on a retreat, it really doesn't look like people are having that good a time. You know, in fact, a, a colleague of mine once said, you know, you walk through a meditation center, people doing walking meditation, and it resembles the march of the condemned. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you can't necessarily judge at all how a person is feeling by how they appear, obviously. But there, are, there is a balance to find here you know, how to bring a sincerity of effort and yet not this sense of exaggerated responsibility, you know, that somehow it's up to me to fix this, you know, I have to go through this, I have to be in charge of this, you know, and if I, if I can't like sort of really contract myself into this ball of earnestness, I, I won't get anywhere. So there's something about holding this whole practice and this whole time here with sincerity of focus, but with also a lot of spaciousness. And, you know, this is really so much part of the practice, you know, because this practice is not about how many breaths in a row you manage to follow, you know, or, you know, how you, you gauge your mindfulness. In fact, I mean, as many as you know, you know, mindfulness has very much entered the, the vocabulary of, of Western culture now. Um, you know, there's a book out about mindful NASCAR racing. I'm not, quite, I'm not quite sure what that looks like, but it, somebody's obviously figured out how to do it. But it has very much entered our contemporary culture. But I, I think what is very important to understand about mindfulness is that it is not attitudinally neutral. It is not attitudinally neutral. That mindfulness is something much more than just eyeballing something more closely. That mindfulness very much has built into it, uh, in, in, very much integral to the fabric of mindfulness qualities of kindness, qualities of compassion, 
qualities of appreciation, a dedication to simplicity, to being able to let go. And this, these attitudinal factors of mindfulness is actually has much to do with the transformational qualities of mindfulness. Certainly I know in Europe, and it's very much true here also in, the, in North America, you know, the way that mindfulness is being brought so much into mental health, into education, um, you know, into prisons, into clinics, in so many different areas. And the very reasons why it is having an effect and being shown to be effective is actually the transformation that takes place in the heart, in the mind. Not just because people are more concentrated or more focused, but because there is a training in this attitudinal shift from aversion and resistance and denial and rejection to an attitude, an inner space of more kindness, more compassion, more simplicity, more, compa- more capacity to let go. And in truth, this is what brings about the loveliness of this practice. This is what makes this path lovely in the beginning and the middle and the end. And you know, when, when, when the Buddha talks or in this teaching, when it's talked about intentionality, and you know, certainly this practice is an intentional attention, it's an intentional mindfulness. But again, when the Buddha talks about like the intentions that really make a difference in our lives, those are the intentions. Kindness, compassion, letting go. And we apply that, we apply that very much moment to moment. When I first, I sometimes think about some of the early instructions I was given in my own practice. And one of the earliest instructions I was given was to find a secluded place with long views. And, you know, the secluded place in a way was kind of easy because I lived on, was living on a Himalayan mountainside. It was pretty secluded. Um, But it soon became apparent to me that it was possible to have a secluded place geographically and not be at all secluded in my mind. You know, that the seclusion, you know, if, if my mind was endlessly prowling the world for more sensory input, you know, more excitement, more gratification, my mind wasn't secluded at all. I could have been locked in a cave and it would still wouldn't have been secluded. And, you know, people, you know, here on a retreat, I mean, as far as we go in our world, you know, this really is a pretty secluded place. I mean, you listen, it's silent. <laughs> you know, it's really quiet here. It really is pretty secluded. And yet we also know if our mind is not secluded, if we don't actually really treasure that, that, that quietness, that stillness, that seclusion, we really could be anywhere. You know, if we find ourselves wandering around the building, you know, consuming the notice board, you know, can consume it, you know, and there's not much entertainment that happens here. So, you know, we can really be pressed to find something to really gratify us. But we manage. 
we manage it. I remember teaching a retreat some time ago, you know, and, and somebody told me they were so restless and so agitated, you know, that they absolutely memorized the notice board and they were reduced to reading the instructions on the fire extinguisher. And, and the first instruction they read said, aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. And they suddenly got it, you know, that this is what they were, this, this restlessness that was driving them was actually really what was getting in the way of the retreat. Hmm? Calming that, a secluded place, but long views. You know, in many ways, mindfulness is actually the seclusion. Say that mindfulness is often the seclusion. It's not a disconnection, it's not pushing the world away, but it is really attending to one moment at a time. And it is really attending to what is right before us, not leaning into the past, not leaning into the future, but just this that is right before us. How wholeheartedly present can we be with that? That is the seclusion. The long views, again, that was pretty easy for me, looking down out of, from the mountaintop. But again, long views, I realized, was nothing to do with geography. It had something to do with the way I was holding my practice and holding myself. You know, you will find in the time here, you know, you can have a sitting that's pretty challenging. You know, your mind is everywhere, your attention is everywhere. It's very easy to form a judgment, isn't it? Oh, this isn't for me. I can't do this, you know, not for me. Um, that's not a long view. That's a very short view. Hmm? That's judging yourself by the contents of a single sitting. Just as in life, we're prone to judge ourselves by the contents of our mind. And the long views is really just having the per patience and the perseverance to kind of be present through the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the easy times, the difficult times, knowing that we have a beginning in this practice, it has a destination, but it is a path, and it's really quite enough that you show up. It's really quite enough that you show up. And the other instruction that I found very interesting when I was in the earliest of my practice was, was being told that this practice was a way of freeing yourself from indebtedness. And, and the, the, the story or, or the metaphor that the Buddha uses was like, imagining if you were really in debt financially, or some of you may have had that experience, you know what it does to your mind, doesn't it? I mean, worrying about it, fretting about it, anxious about it, the burden, the burden of it. And then the Buddha said, imagine what it would be like if you were suddenly able to repay that debt, the sense of freedom, you know, the sense of liberation. But clearly what he was talking about here was not a kind of financial indebtedness. It was really talking, and actually if we want to know what we're indebted to, we just have to really know what our mind hooks onto repeatedly over and over again. The things we are not at peace with, eh? the people we are struggling with, the places where our mind dwells and gets contracted. And a lot of this practice is actually freeing ourselves from that psychological and emotional indebtedness, freeing ourselves from that kind of contractedness. Sometimes it's an outer act of peacemaking, very often it's an inner act of peacemaking. It's very often an inner act of peacemaking. So I might say that, you know, the very first, 
first invitation of everyone coming on a retreat is just to calm down, just to calm down, just to gather, to collect yourself, to be able to relax into this quietude, relax into your body, allow your mind to relax, relax into the present, relax into being here. So, Chaz, if just going to say a few things, yeah? Have you, you, you must have your own thing somewhere, no? He's been deprived of a thing. Hi. So I'd like to welcome you as well. I had the same thought when I walked in. I said, no one's sitting in chairs. It's really quite remarkable. So coming on a meditation retreat is really, um, when you think about the conditions in this world, uh, it's a rare opportunity. And it's, it's really a gift that we give to ourselves and others as well. And when we come on a retreat, we place ourselves in an environment, this environment, and we engage in a practice that has the power to transform how we view this world, this life, and how we live in it. Something called the retreat container is very integral to this process this transformational process when we're on retreat. And this container um, is made up of various elements. Different things uh, go together to, to make it. And they include seclusion, which Christine mentioned, silence, simplicity, the precepts that I'll mention, if you're not aware of the precepts, the community, and the sitting practice itself. As we engage with this practice and these elements that make up the container, because when you're here, you're naturally engaging with simplicity and the schedule and silence, etc. As each of us engages with these elements, they strengthen. And the container strengthens. And as the container strengthens, it can hold us more and support us more and helps us actually engage the practice more, which in turn strengthens the pieces of the container. And so it's this positive feedback loop. And each person on the retreat is a part of that container. And each person does their job to help create and maintain that container. So I'd like to... uh, to say a few things about these individual pieces of the container. First is the schedule. So you've seen the schedule on the bulletin board. Um, and what's nice about the schedule is that we can just let go into it and follow it. We don't have to worry, think about what we have to do now. What should I do now, today? What should I do? Oh, it's time to sit. I go sit. Oh, it's time for lunch. I'll go eat lunch. It's time for walking meditation. Okay, I'll do walking meditation. And it it helps us be simple. Simple in our actions, but like Christina said, but also in the mind. We're not thinking and figuring 
what we have to do. We can just follow the schedule. The other thing about that's nice about the schedule is often we come on retreat and we leave quite busy schedules. And um, we're doing this and we're doing that. And then we come on retreat and we stop, which is a good thing. But if there was no schedule and we just came and stopped, it might be, we'd just kind of be floating and what do I do? So the schedule also gives us some structure to fall back on. So we stop, but the structure helps us know what to do. We're not just left floating. So see if you can um, just give into that. It's, it's, it's a kind of um, beautiful actually letting go, just giving into the schedule, giving yourself over your preferences. Well, I'd rather do this now. I'd rather do that now. No, I'm just going to give into the schedule. That in itself is a wonderful practice. A little bit more about seclusion, really important part of the retreat. And one question is, well, what are we secluding ourselves from? Right? If we're secluding ourselves, what is it that we're secluding ourselves from? Cell phones, computers, newspapers, magazines, etc. Secluding ourselves from these elements of the outside world or these elements uh, where the mind goes to get kind of entertainment or information. What is it like just to be with ourselves, as Christina was talking about, just simply in this moment? Be with life as it's happening right now, not as it's happening in California, reading about it in the news or whatever. So we seclude ourselves from things of the outside world via these uh, uh, electronic devices and entertainment, but we also seclude ourselves inwardly and from each other when we're on retreat. And the peace that helps us do that is something called noble silence. And so we don't talk when we're on retreat. If there's, we need to, uh, we have a question about something, you uh, write a note to the office or to the housekeeping or whatever. It's set up that way so that we don't have to speak. Now, I know uh, a lot of you are new to IMS and perhaps new to meditation and um, almost to a person the thought is, oh my God, two days. I can't not talk for two days. That's just impossible. And, but what's amazing that almost to a person, people say, oh, that was great. That was the easiest part. I loved it. Not having to talk was wonderful. Not talking saves energy. It takes a lot of energy to talk. And those of you who have been on retreats, before know what happens at the end of a retreat when you begin to talk. The energy comes up. It's, it's amazing. And you realize at that point how much energy it takes to talk. So we save that energy so that we can apply it to our practice that we're doing here. That's one important reason that um, we keep noble silence. I 
Another thing is, who are we when we aren't using speech to define ourselves to others? Or um, kind of how others are defining us by how they're talking to us and what they're saying. So who are we when that's not happening? That's interesting and a wonderful place to um, investigate. So the silence really helps us to turn towards that and, and investigate that. Keeping silence is not like an unpleasant chore. It's not hard. It's wonderful. It's something that's beautiful in the middle, in the beginning in the middle. It's, it's really a treat. So enjoy it. Also, though, noble silence, along with refraining from speaking, it also means refraining from any kind of communication. And again, I spoke about talking on the phone to people outside of here or talking on the phone to someone who's here. I don't know. If, do you think that happens? <laughs> um, even, even down to making eye contact. You can play with that. You know, how secluded can I be? How much can I just be with myself? And noble silence supports uh, the simplicity that Christina was talking about. And other things that support simplicity include, again, not using computers. If you happen to have brought a computer, listening to music, reading books or magazines, talking on the phone, Refraining from this, all of that helps and supports simplicity. The simplicity of just this moment, just following the schedule. So silence and simplicity really play an important role in creating this container. And again, each of us uh, in engaging with the practice uh, supports that. Another thing that supports simplicity, Christina mentioned about just resting back into our bodies, is gently slowing down. Not, not you don't have to creep around, but just, just like, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 percent, just relaxing back into your body and just slowing down a little bit as you're walking around the center or as when you're in your room. It's really pleasant to slow down. It's, it's quite relaxing to slow down just a little bit. So you can, you can play with that and practice and see how that feels and see what pace um, feels right for you. I mentioned the precepts. There's a strong ethical component to this practice and all the teachers and all the staff and all the yogis, all the retreat participants who come here um, agree to abide by these precepts which include non-harming, not killing or harming living beings, not taking anything that we know wasn't specifically given to us, um, on retreat, um, abstaining from any kind of sexual activity, um, speaking the truth, if you happen to have a chance to speak or need to speak, speaking the truth. And the fifth precept is not taking um, uh, drugs or alcohol that would cloud the mind. And, um, but that doesn't mean if you have prescription drugs that you can't take them. 
So please continue to do that and n know that you're, it's fine to do that. And, and do do that. Sometimes people can come on retreat and think, oh, this is actually a replacement for this. I can, I can not do this because meditation is going to be some replacement for it. Um, please don't think that. Please continue to take whatever prescription medications that you're on. So as we all um, agree to and abide by these precepts, um, it helps each of us individually to come into integrity, to connect our speech and our behavior with our own good hearts so that there's a match between what's on the inside and what, how it is that we're, we are in the world. And that's beautiful. That's another beautiful thing. When there's no gap there, when there's integrity, it's, it's really a beautiful way to go through life for ourselves and then also how we um, impact the people around us. It creates safety. There's a hundred people here almost. Um, when each person knows that everyone around them is abiding by this precept, it, it creates incredible safety. And that safety uh, supports their relaxation. And finally, the community. Each of you, just by being here, just by showing up, like Christina said, um, you do your part in creating this beautiful container that's like a weave, and each of you is part of the weave. And you all uh, contribute to it and um, help to hold each other and support each other um, just by being here. The middle of the day, walking meditation, the bell rings, it's time to go back into the hall and sit. Sometimes there can perhaps be some reluctance or uh, I'd rather do something else. But you see 80 other people walking into the hall and it's like, okay, I'll just go do that too. It's very supportive to practice uh, in community. So we're held by this container we can relax back into this container, and each of you does your part in creating it. And so I want to um, thank you in advance for doing that. I know you're, some of you are Probably many of you are quite weary already, but um, I want to end the sitting just by introducing the sitting practice and having a short sitting. But before we do that, we, do feel free if you'd like to just stand up and stretch for a moment or two.
you look at any style of meditation, pretty much in any tradition, it becomes apparent that the, the foundation for uh, most meditation practices is the cultivation of wise attention, the cultivation of a collected, a gathered attentiveness. And certainly in this teaching, this cultivation of wise attention, the collected mind, the gathered mind, is very much the foundation of an insight or understanding. It's almost as if, as if you had a, a pool, a, a pool in the forest, and you know when it's blown by, by winds and agitated, it's very difficult to see into it. But when the pool begins to calm down, you can see into its depths. And so in this teaching, this cultivation of wise attention is really put at the forefront. And I must say, it's really one of the more challenging aspects of attention. I mean, we're very much a stimulation-bound culture. You know, something shouts at us and we pay attention. You know, something uh, is very predominant, very exciting, very exhilarating, and we pay attention. But in this practice, we're learning to pay attention without being shouted at. We're learning to pay attention without necessarily something grabbing our attentiveness and acknowledging that this is something that we cultivate moment to moment. Now, in the cultivation of wise attention, it is really helpful to have an anchor of mindfulness, a, a, an anchor of attention, a ground of mindfulness. Now, folks are very different, so I'm going to offer you some choices here. We can establish the attention, our mindfulness, very much in the sense of the body, the posture of the body, your body sitting, the whole sense of your body as you sit. It is actually the first foundation of mindfulness to be mindful of the body. And I'll go through this. The second foundation, which you may, many people are more familiar with and find helpful, is mindfulness of the body breathing. Uh, or, or you can actually use listening as the ground of your attention. Now, for some people, like this is like two ors too many, you know, and they would like to just have one ground of attention. But I acknowledge people have very different temperaments, and it's very much very important that you Adopt the foundation of mindfulness that is most accessible to you. Most accessible to you. Um, in the beginning, I'd like to say that we simplify and just actually really bring our attention to being mindful of the body breathing. I don't want you to idealize this because we don't engage in defensive mindfulness. And, you know, some people hear, oh, yeah, be mindful of your body breathing. And then every moment, not with the breath, is considered to be a mistake, an error. You know, they blew it. But actually, mindfulness of the breathing is actually acting as a mirror for all of those moments when your attention is not with your breath. So we cultivate a certain simplicity, clarity, connectedness with the body breathing. Then we become increasingly aware of those moments of departure and where the attention is in those moments. So we'll just have a very short sitting tonight, and I'll just guide you through this. So first, just take in a moment or two to really establish yourself in, in a posture that just feels as 
balanced and upright and steady as you're able to be. And consciously, quite consciously, relaxing your body. Being aware of any areas in your body where there is tension or holding, your shoulders, letting your shoulders drop and relax, your face, your jaw, your eyes, your belly. Allowing your body to soften, relax, yet also be upright. And being aware of the whole of your body in this moment, your entire body in this moment. Places where your body touches the ground, cushion, the chair. It's mindful of the sensations, pressure, hardness, or warmth. Mindful of the range of sensations present in your body. Hearing, changing. Touch of your clothing on your skin, the air on your skin. The internal sensations. And just widening the circle of that attentiveness. A few moments just to listen, to silence, to sounds. Planting the intention to gather and collect your intention and your attention to be mindful of your body breathing.
aware of the life cycle of a single breath. The beginning of the in-breath. The way your body expands, your chest, your belly, with the in-breath. The relaxing of your body with the out-breath. A sense of the out-breath leaving. Noticing the pause between the out-breath and next in-breath. Sensitizing yourself, that sensation of breathing. The breath as the breath. Breathing in with mindfulness, breathing out with mindfulness. Breathing in with sensitivity, breathing out with sensitivity.
I really encourage you to relax into the quietude of being here, knowing that you don't have to rush, you don't have to be in a hurry, that as you move through the building tonight, really beginning to you know, perhaps be a bit more connected with your body, with how you're moving, rather than with where you're moving to. If you're here with friends or people you know, also relaxing and committing to the silence, you know, making an agreement together to actually really be dedicated to the silence that makes so much difference to the practice. So tomorrow morning, the wake-up bell is at 6 o'clock, the first sitting's at 6.30. In the sitting period after breakfast, we'll speak much more uh, about the actual meditation practice. Um, but enough this evening just to really have a sense of landing and a sense of, of really getting started in the retreat, getting uh, establishing yourself in some some mindfulness and inner listening. And I do hope that you sleep well. And see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.